following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Plagues. 
we see uh, an Egyptian ruler that was making choices that affected, affected entire nations. Why would God put so many people through suffering in order to rescue his chosen people, the Israelites? And ultimately, why would he kill so many millions of people when the firstborn sons died? Why would he kill so many millions of livestock? Why, why would he, he inflict so many millions of people with sickness simply to change the hearts of one man? As this progresses, you see that, that as Pharaoh's heart doesn't change, his advisors, those people that, that he has in council around him, theirs do. Eventually, God has them convinced over and they're begging Pharaoh by the end of this to please just let them go. Don't you get it? Why would God cause so much suffering to change one man's heart? For me, this was a bit of a, a stumbling point. If I'm really going to internalize this, I need to understand a little, about, uh, a little bit about God's sovereignty to go through processes. Because this does not make sense in our modern context. Right? In, in, in any context, you go and kill or hurt or, or, or make millions of people suffer simply to change the heart of one person, we would look at that and say, I don't understand. Well, that does not compute. It doesn't make sense. So I feel like before we go through with this, we have to try and make some sense of that. If you were here during our, our first Peter study, you heard this phrase a lot from John Piper that I used, which said, God will stop at nothing to get out of you what he hates in you. Now in the context of that, we're talking about complete and utter submission. In the context of this, we're talking about God going to great lengths to bring Pharaoh's heart into alignment with God's plan. When we try and make sense of the death at God's will at the hands of his people, we also, we also must take into account his perspective. Right? If we look at this solely from our perspective, it doesn't add up. From our current, uh, somewhat secularized, uh, moral, emotional, human, limited worldview, it's hard to process why this is okay. And in doing that, we're saying that God is like us. Which for me was the process to be able to fully understand this. It's to stop here and say, God is not like me. I am made in the image of God. God does not fit within the context, context of my understanding. He's not limited to the context of my understanding. God is sovereign beyond my imagination. So for me to say that this doesn't make sense, therefore it couldn't happen, or therefore it must, have, it must be different, it, there must be a different perspective on this, is to take God and reduce Him to my level. So I want to encourage you today to do the exact opposite. I want to encourage you today to, to imagine God that is not at your level. A God that is so far, so infinitely beyond you. His plan is so infinitely beyond you. He, as a, as a being, is so infinitely beyond you. That he can understand and comprehend and plan without the confines of time and space. That is the God that enacted this plan. We know from Scripture that God, who calls himself in this context, I am. I am is ultimately gracious. It says in Psalms 145, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, rich in love. We know that he's ultimately just. Romans 3.23, we all sin and fall short of the glory. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. We deserve death. 
But God wants more than just a dead creation. He wants a creation in life. And so he invites us into that relationship. And in that, we can receive justice without paying the price. God is ultimately just. I am is ultimately compassionate. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comforts. I am is ultimately powerful. Behold, these are the outskirts of his ways, and how small a whisper can we hear of him, but the thunder of his power, who can understand? I am his sovereign. No one can come to me unless the Father has sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. His sovereignty, he draws people to himself. I am will not allow Satan to prevail. The Lord preserves those of knowledge, but he ruins the plans of the treacherous. I am will save us from our sin. He acts with, within his character to do whatever that takes. Nothing more and nothing less. Psalms 50, 15 says, Call me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you will honor me. We have to break out of our context, of our time and place, uh, of space and time, to truly to, to make any attempt at understanding the context of the plan that God was raising. So if you're sitting here saying, well, these flags, they were myths, uh, they were just uh, cautionary tales, uh, maybe they really did happen, but man, that, that seems like a God that I don't really understand or know. That's not the God of the New Testament, that's the God of the Old Testament. He must be different. If you're saying those things, you are applying your context, if you're understanding your worldview to a God that is so far beyond that, they are irreconcilable. So I'm going to encourage you to step out of at the same time, I don't want you to just leave the, the, the hope of understanding altogether. We should pursue understanding God's purpose and choices in this life that He's given us. But at the same time, we should not limit Him to our understanding. It is possible to know and trust God through intimate relationship and not understand his purposes and methods. That's all right. That's okay. We worship a God that is beyond our understanding. If he isn't beyond your understanding, then you're not worshiping the true God. If you can contain him in your ration, in your box, then he's not God. For some people, there, it's easy to look at the skeptic. And say, but wait, God is expecting you to have a relationship with Him without somehow giving me divine enlightenment enlightenment into that relationship. I need to be able to process this. I need to be able to rationalize. Well, that's an interesting thought. Um, Unfortunately, it's not the way that we live our lives. In this context, this is not simply just a spiritual thing beyond us. This is is actually a reality for many of us in this current day and age. And I think if we go back and we look at the context of relationship in family, we find a good illustration for this. As I was growing up in the rural state of South Dakota in the United States, a little tiny town in Midland, South Dakota, population of 200 people, uh, my family took up nine of those slots. We were literally about 5% of the population in the town. There was one tiny little general store that was built out of the shell of what used to be the only gas station. And there were two bars, one church. 
This is the town that I grew up in. A tiny little town. One town in the entire county, or one, one, one school in the entire district had 200 students in it. K through 12. My class was less than 20 people. This, this, this is my entire worldview. And my parents were called to this tiny little rural place uh, back in 1989, a couple of years after I was born. And I grew up the, the vast majority of my younger childhood in this place. They were part of the cult, this tiny little rural church, as, as, as a pastor. So my dad came to this church and, and served this church for years and years and years. We were there for about 15 years by the time we moved on to our next posting of another 15 years. And during that time, I grew up an intense amount of frustration with my parents. Not because I was in any way disappointed in them, but because I was disappointed in the church that they served. Because as that young 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 year old, what I saw was a tiny little rural church that couldn't afford to pay my parents for their hard work. That literally paid them in a side of beef annually. They got a side of cow as their Christmas bonus. Many, many months, I remember my parents stressing because there was simply just not enough money in the church to pay the bills and pay their salary. My mom would go to the, the city, you know, 45 minutes away, to Sam's Club, one time a month. She'd load us all up in her big 15-passenger van, and we'd drive out there for our trip to town. And during that trip, my mom would buy groceries for the entire month for our family at night. We'd pack all those things back in the van and we'd come home, and that was our trip to the store. And so I grew up eating giant containers of things that just said cheese on <laughs> Cornflakes, right? Nothing was branded. It was ugly. It was railroad salvage. I don't know if any of you have ever experienced that. You go to these railroad salvage stores that are literally a train wreck, literally, in a store. That's, that's what happened. The trains wreck. The goods are damaged, and they move the goods into the store and sell at a discount. A lot of times, these are military goods or, or uh, government food stuffs, and so they weren't good. They didn't, they, didn't, they didn't taste great. They were always generically branded with just the name of the product on the side. And that I just remember that, and I, I grew angry at that because that was the life my parents had to live in order to serve this little tiny church in business on the road. Well, as I got older. I started to realize more and more that maybe that relationship between my parents and the church wasn't quite as I had interpreted it. That maybe it really was more about my parents being called to that place to endure whatever uh, Satan or God, whatever challenges were put in their lives at that point in time, to endure through money, to endure through finances. And I realize now, many, many years later, as I'm now called into full-time ministry myself, that there was a real purpose behind that experience. That my parents were called to a place to serve because God had called them to that place. And my job as their son was to trust them in that. Instead of trusting them in that, I grew up angry. Instead of trusting them in that, I would have turned out as embarrassed because I was the poor little pastor's kid. That, that was the life that I lived because I did not trust. Now, as I'm raising my own children, I'm asking them to trust me. For me, this is, this is an analogy of the relationship that I have with God that I just simply don't understand. When I was seven years old, there was no way for me to understand the calling that God had put on my parents, the depth of that calling, the purpose.
purpose of that calling, how interesting it was, and why they were there, why they stuck out for 15 years in that place. And I made up my own understanding of something I had no business making an understanding of. When I look at what God is doing here, I, I feel like I'm a child back in that context again. Trying to understand something that I just don't quite understand. And so, for me, I have to go back to the truth of Scripture. Because I can't rationalize all of this. I can't rationalize why so many people had to die or be injured in order to change one wicked man's heart. And I'm okay with that. Because I can go back to the Scripture, and I know that God is sovereign, that God is just, that God is gracious, that those are truths that are, are part of my covenant relationship with my Heavenly Father. Those are things that I know. And anything apart from that cannot, by definition, be truth. Anything apart from that is in opposition to truth. So the idea that God is somehow a different God in the Old Testament than He is in the New Testament is in opposition to the truth that I know. To somehow think that God somehow in sin or in anger that it was sinful, that He killed these people or that He made these people suffer is in direct opposition to the truth that I know and love. And that truth is important because that truth is what sets me free. For me to stand here and be a Christian, that truth must remain intact. If that truth does not remain intact, I can find it for living. So for me, I can't rationalize this But at the same time, I'm okay with that. Because it allows me to to stay in this context where where I can love the Heavenly Father that I have experienced. This experiential relationship where I've seen Him change my life and I'm okay with that. And at the same time, I can read scriptures like this and I I can see how God is sovereign. And what it does is it helps me to be awestruck of His sovereignty. That at the, the snap of the finger, at the, the, the sound of his voice, at the command of his agents, God can do and say as he pleases because he is sovereign and he is everlasting. And if I can't believe that no matter what, then he is not the God of the Bible. So that's the context I want to look at today. That's the context of these plagues. We've got this amazing fight presenting itself here, right? Between God and his chosen two agents, Aaron and Moses, and Pharaoh, the great ruler of the Egyptians, master of millions, master of wealth. And God says, you will let my people go. Moses and Aaron go, they try, they do the staff snake thing, their snake eats the other snakes, Pharaoh doesn't change. Moses goes back to God and God begins to give him instructions. And these instructions come in very strategic ways. We have nine of these things. We have water to blood, frogs, lice, insects, pestilence, boils, hail, locusts, darkness on the people. And each one of these comes in a cycle. At the beginning of each cycle of three, in these three cycles, God always gives Pharaoh a warning. He says Moses and Aaron, and he says, this is going to happen if you don't let my people go. And he gives Pharaoh a chance to change. And Pharaoh does the change. They go back again and they say, you don't understand, Pharaoh. This is really going to happen. But since you disobey, since you disobey God, now 
And that's the consequence. And so Pharaoh goes, Pharaoh goes and, and after he realizes that it's not just the water in the rivers, that it's all the water in the lands. And that it's not treatable. He pleads with them to please take this away from us. And so Moses goes and he, he approaches God and he intercedes on their behalf and God has graciousness and it goes away and Pharaoh turns his heart. Aaron goes back again to Pharaoh and he says, if, if you do this again, you turn, your, 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 from, you turn from God again, uh, then frogs are going to come upon your lands. And we're not talking just a few frogs. We're talking frogs that had to be piled up into, it says, huge piles and burned, and it brought a stench over the city. And Pharaoh, once again, please save us. Save us. Moses goes and intercedes on their behalf, and all the frogs drop dead, and they pile into these piles and they burn them. And then Pharaoh turns away again. So this time, God doesn't send a warning. He says, Aaron, this is what I want you to do. Just go, and there's going to be a plague of lice on Egypt. They don't get a warning this time. And so they, these lice or, or nasty, these little things come, and they speak, they bite, and they're annoying, and it says that fill the sky, that turn things black. And Pharaoh, once again, please, please, Clearly, your God has control over things. Clearly, your God is righteous. Please help me. Help our people. So again, they go and they intercede on his behalf. And he goes away. And Pharaoh turns his heart. And every time Pharaoh digs in just a little bit deeper, just a little bit deeper, he digs those heels in. And Pharaoh tries to outwill God. So then instead of sitting here in the next time, God goes to Pharaoh and says, if you don't let my people go, um, there's going to be a terrible plague of insects or flies all over your land. Pharaoh tells him no. And so what happens? There's a terrible plague of insects. And God goes back again and says, look what happened. And Pharaoh says, please. Save me. So he does. And then Pharaoh turns his face. And God goes back and says, If you don't heed my warning, then there's going to be a disease in your livestock. are all going to die. And Pharaoh says, No. And guess what? Millions and millions and millions of livestock die overnight. What's interesting about these last two? The insects and the livestock. At this point in time, God says, but this time it's just going to be you, Egypt. I'm going to set my people apart. Those first three, they, they, they came, they, the Israelites had to go through those as well. But he makes a point of saying, when the insects come and the livestock come, that I'm going to set my people apart and that this will not touch them. And it says that not a single livestock died in Israel. With the Israelites. Which is kind of interesting, because if you think on any given day, when you have millions of livestock, something's probably going to die. But it says in Scripture that not a single livestock died. God makes that distinction. These are my chosen people. Pharaoh, once again, pleads. 
They put all these dead animals together again. Makes it stink over the land. God has mercy. Pharaoh says, Look at what everyone wants. As soon as there's mercy, Pharaoh turns his face away again. So then God sends Moses. And he says, Moses, you're going to go and you're going to give him, or actually, you're not going to get a full warning this time. This time, I just want you to go, and there's going to be a plague of boils over the land. And these boils, once again, are not going to affect the Israelites. And so this painful disease of boils infected the land, and so you could hear screams. It was so painful. And so Pharaoh, once again, goes and, and please, 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 God, take this away from me. God says, okay. I'm a gracious God. Let's give him another chance. At this point in time, what's interesting is that the, 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 the magicians themselves could not reproduce any of these last three. The first three, they made the attempt. And they were able to conjure up something. These last three were beyond the scope of what they were able to do. And God made the intention of setting apart his people. Well, going into cycle three, Pharaoh still hasn't learned his lesson. He turns away from God again. And so God sends Moses this time. And he says, go and station yourself near near Moses. And I'm going to warn him. And if he defies me again, I'm going to bring a plague of hail on the land. And so Moses goes and he conveys this message. And Pharaoh says, no. And hail comes upon the land and says that anybody, anything outside, die except the unstarted emeralds. That's it. Including livestock. So we know that there must have been a bit of time between these things. It doesn't say explicitly much time is between each play, but this is kind of a first indication. And then now all the livestock die again. So whatever time passed or however long it took them to acquire livestock again, God makes it very clear, those livestock are dead again. And he says, he goes back again, and he says, now what? And Moses leads with his hand. And so, uh, Moses goes, not to be happy, intercedes again, and God takes away the stench of all these dead animals as they're burning up over the lands, he sends Moses back again and says, Now, if you don't listen to me this time, I'm going to send locusts. And Moses says, or Pharaoh says, No, I'm going to want your people. And so God sends locusts and says they ate everything in the land, all the crops. At this point in time, Pharaoh has lost all of his livestock twice and all of his crops. This is going to have a huge economic impact on their country. And yet Pharaoh is still digging his heels and saying no. Well, he goes back and he pleads with God once again after his his, uh, his advisors come to him and say, Pharaoh, <laughs> don't you realize what's happening here? We've had enough. Don't you realize that Egypt is ruined? But, Egypt, er, but Pharaoh once again digs in his heels. God says, okay, no more warning this time. Moses, I'm going to send a plague of darkness on the land instead of black. 
And during this particular plague, it was so dark that nobody moved. That it was pitch black. And so finally, Moses comes back and says, I've had enough. I'm done. Please take this away. This is terrible. And God says, okay, I'm a gracious God. And he takes away the darkness. And then what happens? Moses turns his face to me. Yet again. Oh, sorry. Pharaoh. <laughs> turns his face to Yet again. All these names. And that's where we're going to stop. Because in this pattern, we learn things about who God is. At each time, as Pharaoh goes, or Moses, sorry, Aaron goes, or, or Moses goes to convey this message, God gives him uh, this, this message to tell him, he says, acknowledge that, that, that um, by this, you will know that I am. So that you will know that I am in the land. So that you will know that there is no other like me in all the world. At each cycle, God tells us something about him. They will know I am. Then when things come to the land, they will know I am in the land. And then when the place gets so bad, so destructive, they will know that I am in all the earth. God is communicating something about himself. At each phase, Pharaoh's magicians recognize something. That this is the finger, finger of God. That uh, the magicians could not stand before Moses. And finally, don't you realize what is happening? God's power is displayed in man, in the land, and in the whole earth. And there's this pattern of hardening that happens over and over and over again. Pharaoh digs in his heels over and over and as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, this sounds a lot like raising a two-year-old. Have you done this? I had kind of forgotten between Aiden and Ember how exciting raising a two-year-old can be. Do we as parents have the resolve that God has as we raise our irrational two-year-olds that dig in their heels over and over and over again? God has resolved. He is willing to go to incredible lengths to bring people into relationship with Himself. While Pharaoh is fickle and vain, God is ultimately stable and loving. God has moxie. Right? You know, moxie, courage. God is willing to stand there, to draw that line in the sand, and say, I am here. This is my battleground. And I have courage for my people. He has enough courage that he was willing to ultimately send his son to die for us. That his courage did not just end with the destruction of our hardship of others, but that God had the courage necessary to send his loved one to die on the cross for people that didn't deserve. God has resolved. We also learn from this that, that we are set apart. That God has this special category for people that are his followers. 
And 8.2, it says, He will spare Goshen, where his people live. And 9.4, it says, But the Lord will again make a distinction between the livestock of the Israelites and that of the Egyptians. God is making a point here. That this is not for the Israelites. He wanted the Egyptians to know that this is about you. The is, or sorry, he wanted the Egyptians to know that it is about the Egyptians, not about, uh, not, not about persecuting the Israelites. That he, these commandments are against the Egyptians. That these things will happen, these plagues will destroy them. Now, we can look at this as God setting these people apart, which it says clearly that he does. But at the same time, there's a reciprocal to this. This is Pharaoh's also intention, setting himself apart from God. No matter what Pharaoh decides, God will use him. I want to spend a little bit of time here, because this is a point where uh, I feel my uh, theology has been refined a little bit. In the area of how God uses us. If we look at several biblical figures here, including Pharaoh, if we look at Pilate, at Judas, at Jonah, and at Pharaoh, we see people that have stood against God and the will of God, and what happens? God says, I can work with that. I can still still work with that. Pilate, in his indifference, in his desire for self-preservation, and a little tiny bit of wealth was used for God's will. Pilate made a choice to be apart from God. Judas. Judas's fear and doubt was used for God's will when he's in need of a man to betray you. When Pilate's in need of a man to betray Jesus. Judas was happy to do so. When Jonah was sent out, Jonah, as you probably all know this story at this point in time, didn't start out real amicable. And over time, God changed his heart, and he brought things, brought circumstances into his life that eventually changed his heart. And Jonah made the decision that Pharaoh didn't. Jonah made the decision to stop. Realize who God is. To give in to the will of God. And to be sent by God. And to be used by God. And what's interesting is Jonah is used on both sides of that equation, right? Eventually, Jonah does go where he is told. And he does bring the message that he is supposed to bring to the very, very hostile people he was supposed to bring it to. And so we have that, this, this idea that Jonah was able to be used by God. But at the same time, you know what is interesting is thousands and thousands of years later, God is still using Jonah. Because it wasn't so much later that I actually knew the good, the redemptive side of the Jonah story. I just knew that he was going against the will of God and he got swallowed up by a fish. Thousands of years later, Jonah's testimony is still being used by God. As is Judas's, as is Pilate's, and now Pharaoh's. Pharaoh has set himself against the will of God. He made choices that God, that, that God not only predicted when instructing Moses and Aaron, but God used those choices to show God's character, God's resolve, God's sovereignty to the Egyptians as well as the Israelites. Pharaoh was not beyond the use of God simply because he stood against God. God used this process to draw unbelievers to his name. By the end of it, the, the magicians, the advisors to Pharaoh had all turned on him pretty much. God used this process to turn them towards himself. 
God used this process also to embolden and reinforce his people. Not only to stand against their oppressors, but to ultimately flee and endure years of hardship as he replants them in a new land. We are not beyond these realities. Because we defy God does not put us beyond his grasp or beyond his use. What's interesting is, is that, with, once again, coming back to this idea of two-year-olds, that no matter how many times you go through this process, they expect a different result. No matter how many times they ask you for the cookie and you say no, they think that this time you're really going to get it to them. And then if they throw a giant fit, if they have a huge temper tantrum, that this will be the time that that works. But it doesn't. Because God has resolved. Because we as parents have learned from our relationship with our Heavenly Father. He's given us an instinct for parenting out of that relationship. That we have resolved to stand against that consistent sinfulness. That we ourselves learn also from our parents as they parented us. We also learn in this that resistance is absolutely irrational. Right? You look at Pharaoh, and all of us on looking in hindsight, retrospective, from, from thousands of years later, we're looking at Pharaoh, and you kind of almost want to say, Pharaoh, come on, this time, just, just do it. We're kind of almost rooting for him a little bit. Pharaoh, this is going to be painful. Please, this time, this time. It doesn't make any sense, Pharaoh. Are you crazy? You're standing against the God of the universe, and, and you're trying to slide in the sand, and God just makes his go over it, whatever he wants. And yet Pharaoh continues to get hardened. You wonder, how can my heart harden to something so amazing? Well, unfortunately, Pharaoh was not the last, nor was he the first representative of this type of anger, of fear, of pride. That continues on. And we see that all through Scripture. We see that through the Pharisees. We see that today. As those of us that are adults, Stand before God so many times we draw a line and say, say, God, I won't go past this, you won't go past this, we've got a nice happy little place here. And God says, so what we'll the line says, you want to bet? Because I'm going to push you. I will, do, I will stop at nothing to get out of you. What I hate in you. Resistance is irrational. We see this picture of how irrational hardening can be. Have you ever tried to feed a two-year-old? That's kind of a fun process. Ever, what would you like to eat today? I want, pick it out of here, chicken. Great. We have chicken. She doesn't want chicken. Eggs? Yeah, sure. No, she doesn't want eggs. It doesn't matter what it is. What she wants is control. She doesn't necessarily want food. That's the thing about being irrational. From an outsider's perspective, you can see kind of what they actually want. You can see from our perspective what Pharaoh was really going for, what Pharaoh really wanted. We can see that what Pharaoh really wanted was control of his own way. And he wanted God out of it. Looking at this resistance from our perspective and dealing with an all-powerful God that commands the universe, it looks ridiculous that Pharaoh would continue to extend the resources of his land and his people, the pain of boils, eventually the death of all the firstborn. Because somehow he thought he was going to outwill God. It is irrational. It doesn't make any sense. And to the outsiders, we should be aware of this. 
Now I want you to take, to take you, I want you to be an insider. I want you to look at your own life. What is irrational about that? Some of us were kids not too long ago, right? We can remember those parents. I, I, I remember my parents saying, uh, you're being irrational. This doesn't make any sense. And I remember thinking, I'm going to make it make sense. And it didn't make any sense. It was stupid. It didn't matter what it was. Because that, that, that pride was not coming from a place of ration. It was coming from a place of my, my desire. And that's where Pharaoh is. We also see in this context that resistance to God is futile. Right? It's Star Wars or Star Trek. Ooh, I almost made a mistake there. Star Trek. Resistance is futile. And that particular version, right, is the Borg is there and they're saying, resistance is futile. We have to assimilate you, right? That's this whole idea that these, these humans are to be assimilated by this other being and they say, resistance is futile. But no matter what, we will just overwhelm your resistance because we can't overwhelm you. We have the resources to overwhelm you. Resistance is futile. Now, the analogy breaks down there because eventually we know the good guys win, so I'm going to stop there. But, in this case, Resistance is futile. No matter what you're going to muster against God, He will overcome. He will overcome. Not because He hates you, not because He doesn't love you, but because He loves you so deeply, He is willing to do anything that it takes to win you over, to bring you to Him. Resistance is futile. And in that, we all have commonplace with, with Job, uh, Jonah, Judas, uh, Moses, Aaron, all these, these figures, uh, as well as most everybody else in God's story and scripture, uh, because we find this commonplace um, in this lesson of hardening. We've all become hardened. God will use us for His glory whether or not we comply with His demands. Resistance is he is sovereign, and his plan is what is best for us. When we reject his plan, we reject his desire. But he will use us for his glory. The question that came up now as I was studying for this particular sermon is what? What was God's desire in this? And how did God's will and his desire interact and as I started meditating on this and thinking on this, this just this picture of, of tension between God's will and his desire came to mind. And it's not because I think in God's mind there is tension. I think it's because I can't comprehend God's will and his desire in the same place. Because I know that God so desires his people and his creation to come to a knowing and loving relationship with him. But at the same time, his will is constantly enacting his plan to win in this epic battle. And sometimes, from my mind, those things are not reconciled. Who is this God of love that would kill so many people? Because there's this tension, I think, that we can see from our perspective, because we can't quite understand it, between God's will and God's desire. God's desire is to rescue us from the fiery grasp of sin and ultimately point to his glory. He does not simply desire to be glorified. He deserves to be glorified. It is through this glory that each one of us has, to come, has come to know him. 
If you are here and you proclaim Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, it's because you've received this Lord. You've, you've, you've seen it. It's made an impact on you. To say that this glory is not relevant, or just is to minimize that very character that draws each one of us to salvation, is irrational. We cannot have salvation without His glory. And His glory is manifest in those that He has saved. We all have the choice to accept that salvation and pursue a deep, interactive, and compassionate relationship with God. At the same time, God's will is not a choice that we make. God's will is not a choice that we make. God's will is a choice that He has made. It will be done. In the complex context of our relationship with Him, He asks us to ask and seek and knock so that He might open the door of new life to us. Well, these actions do somehow, in His sovereignty, carry His power and His authority and affect the manifestation or means of His will, as we see in many of the Old Testament prophets and biblical commands, to intercede on behalf of others. They cannot defer God from His will to rescue His people and be glorified. I do think that God desires to bring people into relationship with Him. But He's also sovereign and knows the end game. He knows where the finish line is. He knows who's going to cross that. He is all-powerful and all-knowing. And His will will be done. Our choice is not somehow to verify or direct God's will or His creation, but rather to accept His desire for us to be part of that will through a deep and purposeful relationship. That's where that tension lies. And we need to grasp onto that. God does not desire the destruction of billions of people. It would be inconsistent with all sorts of other things. But at the same time, it happens. But his will is to rescue his people. And sometimes that requires destruction. I cannot see in Scripture how God would desire for the destruction of creation, but I can see that he is just and will he is just and he wills the destruction of evil as well as ultimate glory, so the free gift of eternal life is available to those in bondage that are drawn by His glory. Can I ultimately say that I truly understand this? No. I'm not here to tell you what I understand. I'm here today because I feel like God's giving me a, a message of truth. And that truth is something I'm going to be very, very hard to somehow connect between my head in my heart. I have the truth of Scripture available to me, just as you do. And I can experience God through the world that He put me in, but to say that I can grasp this concept in, in full would be prideful and a lie. Lack of understanding the complexity of God should not deter us from proclaiming His name. So long as we make the proclamation in the understanding that we are proclaiming truth, an experience rather than complete understanding. Nobody is asking you in your life to 
proclaim complete understanding of who God is. That's not part of this relationship because it would be an unreasonable expectation. What God is asking is that we proclaim His truth. And in this particular context, that's what Aaron and Moses are coming to do. That's the message. That's, that's the will of God. God is ultimately just, ultimately compassionate, ultimately powerful, ultimately knowledgeable, ultimately sympathetic, and ultimately a God beyond the grasp of understanding, but true to His character and purpose for the world. How we seek understanding and reconciliation of these interwoven and perfectly dependent truths is likely to be unique to our experience. But, that adds diversity to this church and to many other churches. That's why each one of our experiences is just a little bit different. Why I come from Podunk, nowhere, in Midland, South Dakota, and my experience is a little bit different than yours. Maybe you come from someplace even more rural than that. I was born in a town called Pence, Kansas, population 20. No gas station. Tiny little town. People in that town had a different experience growing up than you and I did. The reason I bring this up is because I think experience is a key piece of understanding this story. If we try and rationalize it with this idea, this unbalanced idea that God would never hurt anybody and that He never, never willed the destruction of that would be inconsistent with my experience that God has fought so hard to win over my life and your life and the lives of so many others that He's willing to do whatever it takes to bring people to His name. My experience does somehow enlighten my ability to understand this story just as yours does. I do believe that this story is true. I do believe that it was written down in Scripture as truth. And I do believe that God intentionally hardened Pharaoh's heart. And I do believe that millions of people suffered for that because God had one purpose, and that was to rescue his people. And I am thankful for that purpose because it is the same purpose that brings every single one of us to this point in this place today. Without that purpose, you have not received forgiveness. That is the purpose that draws you to God. That is the purpose that compels you to be in relationship with Him. To say that somehow that can't be true and that's unreconcilable, but God can miraculously reconcile my life and change my very being into His holy creation is irrational. The God of the Bible is the God of the Bible. Today, yesterday, and forever. This is the modern story of salvation. It's not just the ancient story of rescue. This is Christ coming into our lives, coming into this place, coming into each and every heart in here, giving the ultimate sacrifice, paying the ultimate price, stopping at absolutely nothing to win you over. The story of rescue it's not just an ancient story. It's God's plan. It's His purpose for who we are. It's His purpose for His people. I want to be inspired by that. I want you to be inspired by that. I want you to know how important it is that this God loves you and He's willing to fight for you because that is what gives you energy. That is what is going to call you out into 
ministry. That is what is going to empower your ministry. We cannot be successful apart from this story of rescue because it's not just ancient history. It is modern day truth of the gospel. That is who we are as God's creation. And I invite you to be part of that. I invite you to keep me accountable to being part of that. I invite you into the community of this church to be part of that. To be reconciled to the God that is willing to do anything to bring you in relationship to Him. That is the God we serve. Sovereign, powerful, gracious, merciful, perfect, loving. And it is out of that love that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And it is out of that love that he rescued his people from his grasp. And it is out of that love that thousands of years later we can still enjoy that salvation as his people. That is the message of the gospel. If that's new to you, if you honestly have not heard that, or maybe you've forgotten, or maybe you're sitting here today going, what am I doing in this place? Come and talk. Let me tell you more about this message. Maybe I'm not the right person to do it. Let me help somebody else connect with you and tell you the story of this message. Because it is why we are here, and it is the truth. It is the truth of the gospel. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.